0: From Bumble Australia and Shameless Media, this is Love, etc.
1: When my love takes me home, it's one of five, eight, or thirty miles long. Foot like lead, nerves like steel, wild ride, windy, sticking the way. Are
2: you a woman who doesn't orgasm during sex? Are you a woman who hates sex more generally? Are you wondering if you have the average sex drive? Welcome to Love Etc, where your hosts, Michelle Andrews and Zara McDonald.
0: Hello, you're listening to Love Etc, a podcast by Bumble Australia, the social networking app where women make the first move. On the agenda today, sex, but from the perspective of the women who
2: don't actually like it.
0: To do that, we're starting with an expert. Chantelle
2: Otten knows her shit when it comes to sex. She's a Melbourne-based psychosexologist who has a Bachelor in Psychological Science and a Masters of Science Medicine. The first question we had for her was a very simple one. How common is it for women to not orgasm during sex?
1: There's a huge amount of women that think that they should be having orgasms through penetration. Realistically, it just doesn't happen for the majority of women. So take the pressure off. Uh, 75% of women will will not be able to orgasm through penetration so focus on the clitoris and how you can rub against it or do you have to be having a full orgasm i think that uh, the types of orgasm vary and you can have a huge amount of pleasure without having that kind of burst at the end and that come down a lot of women can't orgasm. A good like 20% just can't do it. So, what can you get from the sexual experience that is awesome? Think about the type of senses that you enjoy. So, we have touch, we have sight, we have sound, we have hearing, and we have taste. Which is your favorite in the bedroom? And a lot of people say touch. And I ask them, well, how do you experiment with touch? Can you experiment with the type of pressure or maybe the instrument that is touching you? Maybe you use a feather instead or there's a lot of sex toys out there that are are wonderful for uh, different types of stimulation as well. And if it's sight, what can you do to make your vision in the bedroom interesting? Maybe you introduce candles or lingerie or uh, different types of outfits. And uh, if it's taste, maybe different types of lubricants or massage oils or just... I don't know, sweat from your partner. So I ask them to maybe take the pressure off orgasm and just look at pleasure a lot of the time. There are a lot of women that I see that say they've never orgasmed, but they are having orgasm symptoms such as kind of fluttering feelings in their vagina or tension build up and then a bit of a drop. A lot of these women aren't so in tune with their bodies and they think this is really disappointing. Is this what an orgasm is like? And it it takes a uh, an orgasmia is very difficult to treat but it takes a little bit of time to to teach them how to be mindful and present in their body and kind of remove any anxieties um, and just be happy with what is going on in there and see if they can develop it further. I know this is a big question, but could you explore just some of the reasons
0: why women listening to this podcast might find sex painful or really unenjoyable? What are some of
1: those that might cause that? Yeah, that's a. am really glad you asked that question because it's a huge part of my practice. There's one main condition that I treat that I would say maybe 25% of patients within this clinic come in with. It's called vaginismus. So it sounds like Christmas for the vagina, but it's opposite. It's like Halloween. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> and, I feel like you said that before.
1: <laughs> uh, this is how I explain it. And basically, it is when you have a very tight pelvic floor and... Uh, pushing maybe um a tampon in or a finger or a penis is very difficult and it feels like burning razor blade like sensations in the vagina uh one in five women will experience vaginismus so extremely common extremely easy to fix so I often put up posts about this on my Instagram and then I have so many DMs from women who are saying, I've got this, how do I treat it? I'm developing an online course because it's that easy, you can fix it at home, Uh, but vaginismus is basically where your pelvic floor is tight and you have to retrain it to be able to fit something inside your vagina Uh, and it will take a couple of weeks and you have to use dilators which are kind of like different sizes of of vibrators in a way to stretch it out. Um, or you can see a pelvic floor physiotherapist as well. There's another condition called vulvodynia, which is where you have uh, uncomfortable feelings, maybe kind of heat or burning feelings on your vulva, which is the whole outside of the vagina. So where your kind of lips are around your clitoris and down towards the anus. And uh, when you have sexual pain in one area, you'll usually then have another condition come up at the same time. So a lot of women involved with in will also get vaginismus because they're anticipating pain. So they're starting to clench their pelvic floor muscles, which will then end up in vaginismus symptoms. There is another one called lichen sclerosis, uh, which is where just the inside of your vagina, the, the tissue will change a little bit and start, um, I guess, uh, bonding together with other tissue. It's extremely painful. I'm not going to explain that in too much detail because you will need to see a gynecologist that is specialized in sexual medicine to treat it or a vulva dermatologist. Uh, and there are a few other ones, but you know that has to do with STIs and and just different kind of conditions and UTIs and you know mm. uh, candida. I
0: i didn't know some of those like the
2: burning sensation and stuff mm. it's interesting to me that i mean this is your entire work field and you have a full-time job and a clinic out of mm. it and yet it's a conversation that a lot of women aren't a part of and they wouldn't even hear that ha- won't have even heard the terms before mm. how how isolating is it for the women that come into this place that experience these things where there is no public conversation about it
1: it's It's extremely isolating. They all think they're alone. And when I tell them one in five women have it, they go, what? Because they've often gone to see a GP who's not diagnosed it properly. And maybe they've gone five years with it. Maybe they've gone 15 years with it. And their GP has said, just have a glass of wine and relax and you'll be fine. Or they've gone and got a pap smear and their pap smear has been fine. And they can put a finger or a vibrator in themselves. But as soon as their partner comes close to them, then their pelvic floor tightens. So it is a psychological and biological condition uh, and you have to diagnose it through history taking, not actually through a physical examination. So it's it's extremely isolating and they feel like they're freaks especially if they've never had uh, penetration. There's a lot of unconsummated marriages out there because of this condition and it's really really sad because it's super easy to fix. So uh, hopefully, with a little bit more education and podcasts like this, we can get the word out there, and people won't feel alone anymore.
2: What would you say to
1: to a woman who felt crazy for not liking sex, penetrative sex? Mm. That is, I mean, it's. I mean, is it that big of a deal? To be honest, no. What can you do in the bedroom that's still fun and enjoyable? And how can you work with your partner to make it a great time? I don't think it's crazy. I think it's good to explore why. Uh, and to explore what types of sexuality you can have. It is important to have sexuality in your relationship for a lot of people. And if you're trying for a baby, of course, it would be beneficial if you can do it in a a nice, natural way. Uh, But I always just say, what can you do on, on the menu? I mean... Maybe penetration and orgasm are on the dessert menu and you can have entree and main in a different way. Maybe it's about nipples for them or just body touch or making out uh, or things, you know, that are a bit more kinky. Coming up next,
0: Zara shares her own story. But first, it's time for a Bumble Break.
2: Mish, you know how much we love a rooftop party. And on Sunday, June 30, Bumble are throwing the ultimate rooftop party for their Melbourne users. This sounds amazing. That's right, guys. On Sunday,
0: June 30, Bumble are throwing a rooftop pride party at the Emerson in celebration of World
2: Pride with a free rainbow shot on arrival for anyone who shows their Bumble profile. How good's that? The party will include a love and equality themed performance from drag queens, fundraising for Victorian Pride Centre, merch giveaways and, might we add again, a free drink on arrival for anyone who shows their bumble profile if you're in melbourne download the bumble app and match
0: with the rooftop pride party profile for more information
2: make the first move with bumble one
0: app three modes one mission Hey guys, Miss just jumping in here for a quick second. We are changing gears for the second segment of this episode. We want to do something a little bit different because when Zara and I came up with this episode and the content that we wanted to cover, Zara actually made the difficult choice to share her own story for the very first time. So here's that chat. All right. All right. I think where we probably need to start is why are you choosing to talk about this today? First of all, you are a pretty private person. I've known you for a long time now. You're much more private than me. So I am curious, why do you want to explore this publicly and openly?
2: Um, uh, (laughs) The answer to that question is I don't really want to, like I never intended to. When we decided to do this podcast and we were planning the episodes, you will remember so early on that I said we need to do an episode on women that hate sex, like whether that's women that find sex unenjoyable, whether women struggle with sex, whether women can't orgasm having sex. And I remember you saying to me in those early sort of planning stages, do you want to talk about it? And I said, I'm not talking about it, but I'm gonna. we're going to do the episode and we're going to spread the message, but I'm not putting my face to it. And then a couple of things happened. Firstly, we asked a lot of other women onto the show to talk about some of like the most harrowing things that they have been through. And I think the more people listen to this 12 part series, they will realize the kinds of things that we asked of people, which were asking them to talk about their heartbreak and their loss and some of like the depths of their sadness. And, I started to realize that I couldn't ask that of other people on my show if I wasn't willing to do some of that myself. Yeah. Well, you went for a run and then you called me
0: and you said, I want to talk about it.
2: Well, that happened after we interviewed Chantel. And so I had all of this working in the back of my mind. And then we interviewed Chantel Otten about these conditions and we went into that interview and I didn't even bother telling her as I was asking these questions that I knew all about it because I have dealt with this for much of my life. And we left that interview and I did go for a run. We split up. I went for a run and it kind of hit me like it. I felt like I had been hit by a freight train and I was like, I actually cannot do this episode and have a conversation about these kinds of things and pretend that it doesn't infiltrate every aspect of my life, like that would be incredibly cowardly of me. So I did pick up the phone and I called you and I thought we have to actually do this. Mm -hmm. And as much as I don't want to do this and as private as I am and as much as I never, ever want to make my experiences public about anything really... I think I'd just be a massive coward if I didn't.
0: Really dove into the deep end with this
2: one. (laughs) It's literally no turning back now. Um, I guess the second place
0: then is tell me about the moment when you realised that something wasn't right.
2: It's a funny question, this one, because I think with hindsight I can pinpoint the minute something wasn't right. I just didn't know that it wasn't right at the time. Mm. So I think it, it dates back to being 12 or 13 and getting my period and it was two things around my period the first was that I was always in pain and the second was that I hated using tampons I could never work out why people were so effortless about tampons like it physically hurt to put them in and I mean at the risk of TMI but what is this entire conversation (laughs) gonna be so I don't even think I should warn about that I remember my mum buying my sister and I tampons and I would always request the smaller size, like the mini size, where people often joked, they're like, what is even the point of a mini tampon because you need to always pull them out. But they were the only size that kind of didn't hurt me as much as the others like it physically hurt to put them up
0: and I can imagine that would have been confusing because lots of people at that age like I remember when I was 13 14 getting my period that I struggled to use tampons anyway and that it might just be a natural thing where you're thinking well my friends might be struggling to use these it's an awkward time like you're figuring out your body still I definitely struggled with tampons for like a year figuring exactly. out how to actually do it so in your head you might have just been like well maybe this is how lots of people experience tampons for the first few years
2: 100% and I think there's a lot to say about how women experience periods and pain and sex in those early years because nobody talks about it and there's nobody to guide you through it. So there's very much a sense that maybe this is how it's meant to be. That was probably the first point. Later when I was 16 or 17, the pain around my periods became pretty overwhelming. I was always exhausted when I had my period. Um, And when I was 17 and I was starting to try and have sex, I was so confused because I was in so much pain and I was so confused as to why it was happening, whether it was just early days and something was not quite right, whether this was the kind of barrier that a lot of people needed to push through. Like breaking your hymen pain. Exactly. But when I was 16 and I was going through a lot of this period pain, I went to the doctor and I had a conversation with the doctor about it. And the doctor said, look, you've probably done some Googling. And I was like, I have not done some Googling. (laughs) I am a great student. I would never do that. And she said, you probably think it's endometriosis, but it's not. Come back to me in a year if you're still in pain. So I obviously went home then and did some Googling. And actually looked into endo and then I was like okay well she doesn't think she doesn't seem to think that that's what I have so I'm going to keep rolling with the punches and then a year later when I did start having sex and then I started googling that and I started putting a lot of these things together I thought I don't think I just have endo I think I have vaginismus and I think these two things are like inextricably linked so a year to the day I went back to that doctor and I was like there's all of these other things going on now and you can't tell me that there's nothing wrong like you cannot tell me that these things aren't linked And so she said, you're right, and we went through a million stages of getting that diagnosis right. So that was a GP? That was a GP. Where do you go after the GP? Go to a gynecologist, but you go to more than one. The hardest part about endo is that you can't diagnose – endo unless you are put through surgery and they can actually open you up and look inside of you. And in order to reach that point, to make sure they don't unnecessarily put you under, they have to put you through all of these tests, which involves shoving a lot of things up you. And the irony of that is that I wasn't just dealing with endo, I was dealing with vaginismus too, which means those things were inherently incredibly painful. So in order to find out what was causing me so much pain, they had to inflict pain. Are they often linked, vaginismus? Um, not always, window? not always, but I think there is there is a definite link there for some people and for me they were.
0: Around this time were you reading stories from any women who came out and linked the two or did you
2: find anything online that was comforting or that you sought solace in? It's so funny you asked that. No, I deliberately avoided it. Like I didn't want to consume anything. The more I have thought about this in the last few weeks, the more I've realised how denial has played a role in all of this, right? And I didn't seek anything out. I deliberately didn't. I remember so well, and you'll remember this too, but you won't remember it from my perspective, obviously, Mm. because I wouldn't have said anything. But I remember when we were working at Mamma Mia!, and we were working a Saturday shift and we were both writers at the time. We were super green and we were both working from home separately. And I, I think you were working this day because you'll remember the story. There was a story that went live on the Saturday that was from a woman who writes in the US for BuzzFeed. Yeah, I remember this. Yeah. And she wrote a story that we had republished and it was, like, it, it was titled, What It's Like to Date When You Can't Have Sex. And I remember seeing that story go live and it was an afternoon and I was sitting at home and I remember watching it. Um, it's so dumb. See, like even just need, like remembering these moments is just like so dumb. I think because I'm also embarrassed because I know it's so first world and there's like so many worse things that people go through, but I think there's, the more I talk about this, the more i the more I talk about this, the more I realize that it was just complete isolation, not the issue. So I remember sitting at home and I remember watching it shoot to the top of Chartbeat. And for those who don't know what Chartbeat is, it's this tool that journalists use to work out who's clicking on what story at once. And I remember it was read by like 20 times the amount of people as anyone else is on the next story. And I think you would think in that moment that I would find comfort in that, that someone was writing about it and there's a story. But I remember being Angry, I was so angry. And I held it together for the rest of the shift. And then at the end of the shift, I lay in bed in like the fetal position, so angry because I thought everybody's clicking on this because I'm a freak show. Like everybody's clicking on this because they can't possibly understand this experience because it's so bizarre. People can't understand it because it's so weird. And I was annoyed that I had been made example of, even though I wasn't even part of the story and no one even knew. Looking back on that, do you think that maybe people
0: were clicking on it because lots of people had experienced it without a vocabulary to talk 1000% about One thousand
2: percent. I think talking to Chantelle and talking to more women in the recent weeks—that's exactly what it was. I think if we're talking about these kinds of issues, they're affecting twenty to twenty-five percent of women, and nobody's talking about it. And for me, like I, I want to flag over and over and over again, there are so many worse things that anybody could go through. Like this is on, in terms of things that you can go through, the actual physical issue is kind of a non-issue. It's the isolation and it's the loneliness. And it's the fact that you don't talk to anyone about it that actually drives you mental. Well, particularly because the
0: conversation about women and sex is so shrouded in shame a lot of the time. Like you shouldn't really be talking about sex as a young woman in today's society because it's not seen as decorous, means that we don't have conversations, which means that people who are suffering legitimate medical issues go unnoticed and unseen and they become invisible. I am interested as someone who has never experienced this before, and it might be a nitty gritty question and one that you don't want to answer, but what is the pain actually like? What does it feel like?
2: So for me, with regards to vaginismus, and all of these things kind of manifest in different ways, but for vaginismus in the early days before I kind of really worked on it, it was, I used to try and explain it to my boyfriend at the time, which didn't make him feel very good, that it was like there was a knife up me. (laughs) And then the more... I dealt with it. So I went to gynecologists, I went to a pelvic floor physio, I went to a sexual health therapist as well. There's a lot of avenues to take with this kind of stuff. It does not feel like that anymore. In fact, these days, once you actually go through the motions and do the work and put the exercises in, you'll never feel like that again. It just depends on the day for me now. Like stress is really bad with these kinds of things. If I'm stressed, my whole body will tighten and it will mean that it will be way more painful than the average person. If I'm relaxed and I'm in a good space, then it will be okay. I don't think, I can't think that there will ever be a day where I think it's great, but I'm happy I'm happy with that because A, I know how far I've come and B, I know there are a lot of women that, that are in the same boat. I mean, we talked to Chantel before and she said that a lot of women just don't orgasm during sex and that's just a thing that women deal with that nobody else talks about. Mm. How does this affect a romantic relationship? Um, That's an interesting question. I don't think it can't, but uh, I don't think I ever let it, Break my relationships, and I don't think that this would ever be something that could break a relationship. I think my denial and my inability to talk about it or deal with it probably broke a relationship more than once, for sure. And that's not to say that this was a direct result of the breakdown of relationships, but it's the kind of idea that this led to X, which led to the Y, which led to the breakdown of a relationship. It's in like a breakdown of communication. A complete breakdown of communication. And I think the the thing that I will harp on and on and on about today is for me, it's it's not the issue is not the sex and it's not the pain that's so, so easy to deal with. It's the fact that you don't know who to talk to and that you don't end up talking to anyone. And if you don't know who to talk to, and if you don't talk to anyone, you're probably not going to talk to your partner about it because you don't have the communication skills to do so. And if you're not doing that, then a lot of other things are going to fall apart because of it. So after
0: you went to the GP and then the gyno pelvic floor therapist, sex therapist, who in your actual circle would you talk to this about? Who was the first person you told that wasn't a doctor?
2: My friends will be laughing at this because I didn't talk to anyone. Like I didn't talk to anyone. I I had to talk to my boyfriend at the time about it, obviously. Um, it took me maybe – this will sound outrageous, but – it took me maybe a year to tell my mum. like my mum knew that I had endo and other stuff going on, but I, I kind of very easily focused on the endometriosis because it was far more palatable to talk about, right? Um, people kind of were starting to understand what it was and it, there wasn't as much embarrassment or shame compared to a vaginismus diagnosis. So it took me about a year to, to tell my mum that this was starting to really affect my psyche and I didn't know what to do about it. I don't think I ever explained specifically to my sister and I'm really close with my sister. Like my sister is one of the closest people in my life. I think I gave her enough to go off for her to understand. And I think that's how I dealt with it over the last few years is that I kind of didn't give the people in my circle enough details so they didn't know what to do with it. I kind of gave them little tricklings of information and they sort of went with that and ran with it. I was on the phone to my best friend last week. She lives in London. And I was telling her that I was going to have this conversation with you. And she was like, oh, my God, sorry. It took me four years to work out what was going on. And the only reason I was able to do that is because I was able to come at it from a really clinical point of view because she's from the health sciences. And she was saying, tell me the words. Tell me the diagnosis. Tell me what we can do together t- to work through this. But she says it took me four years for you to actually Tell me what it was. I was out for drinks with another girlfriend last week telling her the same thing because I thought I better get used to having this conversation before I have it with you. And she said, I've, you brought it up with me once and you never raised it again. So I never felt like I could. Yeah, so I didn't talk to anyone. Well,
0: we never really had a conversation about it. I mean, we've had conversations where you've implied that think- something wasn't quite right and I knew that that was an area that was a bit of a sore point literally for you. <laughs> <laughs> but we never really used the actual words around it because, again, do you feel on some level embarrassed at all or how does this affect you psychologically?
2: Um, I had you asked me that question a month ago. I would have told you that it didn't affect me psychologically because I didn't let it. But I think the concept of denial probably isolated me more than I needed to be isolated. I I look back at the last four or five years and I look at those moments where like it very nearly broke me, like just not being able to talk to anyone about it, like not the fact that I was ever in pain or not the fact that I was dealing with stuff, but the fact that... It was ruining my mind. And the worst part was in that time, there were some like really rough things going on. Like both of my parents were dealing with cancer, quite serious cancer diagnoses. My, my family was going through a lot. I was going through my own breakups. And I look back at those times and I, I think that it was this that could have broken me the most out of all of that. And not because I think I'm a necessarily selfish person and I cared more about myself. It's because I was able to talk about my parents' health with them. I was able to talk about my breakups with my friends. I didn't know what to do with this. And so I let it infiltrate every part of my mind. And if I look back at the lowest and saddest times of the last five years, it would be when I would be by myself in my room, refusing to talk to anyone about it because I didn't know what else to do. Mm -hmm. Um, which just seems so illogical when we're having this conversation, right? It seems so illogical that something that's not in any way life-altering can have a hold on you like that. But even
0: then, I think you're even minimizing it now. You're trying to make excuses for it now, but it is life-altering. This is something that people talk about sex and relationships and intimacy is something that we have a whole podcast on now. Like this is a big part of life. Of course, you're allowed to say that it infiltrated your psyche to this level. It's huge. It's a huge part of you and your story. And if you felt like you could never talk about it.
2: Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, firstly, this stuff can be fixed and I think it can be fixed to certain degrees. I don't think mine will ever be fixed to the point, like I said, where I will be on the same level as you, for example. But it's a hard one when you're young, right? And this is what I've been thinking about a lot when I've read all of the statistics about how many women kind of go through these issues. In that the the emphasis that we put on relationships is like a sexual chemistry. And that if your sexual chemistry isn't there, then your relationship is less legitimate. And I remember always thinking, okay, well, what do I do with this information, right? How how do I consider my relationship and its legitimacy if I'm the one that's the burden on the sexual chemistry because I'm in pain? And that's like a pretty hard thing to navigate as a young person, trying to work out what your purpose is, what your role is, and how kind of credible and worthy your own relationship is. It's really hard not to take that upon yourself and start questioning whether... A, you're worth anything, and B, whether your relationship is. Mm. It's an
0: interesting thing for you now as well in that you aren't in a relationship anymore. So as a single woman dealing with this, does that feel like an extra burden or does it feel like an extra weight that you need to bring into a relationship that you need to tell someone about when you first begin seeing
2: each other? I don't know the answer to that yet. I mean, yes, there's a burden there. And I I think I remember... A couple of days after I became single and I was sitting on the beach with a girlfriend and I was saying to her, I like – I know I'm in the right space right now and I know that I want to be single, but like, I don't know how to deal with this. And I remember we were both wearing sunglasses and I was probably crying underneath them. And I think we had like four male friends running around kicking a ball as we were having this conversation. And I remember Maddie just looked at me and she said, Zara, everybody has fucking baggage. Like everybody's walking into these dates and everybody's walking into meeting new people with something that they don't want to broach yet. Like this is just one thing. And I think I held that pretty close to my chest and still do. Um Of course, it's something that I think about but I also think that in the last few weeks I've been thinking that this has actually fundamentally changed my personality for sure and I I didn't realise it at all, but I think it's fundamentally changed my personality, particularly when it comes to, to thinking about who I'll end up with because when all of this stuff was going down in those very early adult years, I remember thinking, well, I am fundamentally flawed and if I'm fundamentally flawed and I am going to bring someone if I'm going to be a bit of a hassle in the long run I need to make sure that my personality is near centimeter perfect and that my work is like centimeter perfect and that I come across far more of a of a put together person than I feel and I think you kind of overcompensate confidence wise because of that and I thought if if people meet me and they find this stuff out I don't want them to think I'm too much of a fraud. Like I want them to think that there's enough going for me that they would still bother dating me with all of this, like under my belt. So I think weirdly it forced me to be more confident than I felt, which is strange in hindsight. And I think when it comes to ever meeting somebody, it will be that, that kind of, it feels like a maths equation. Like my personality and my work, And my sense of kindness or loyalty needs to be worth more than the average person because I can't give as much as anyone else in other aspects. So you're literally trying to compensate? Completely.
0: Do you feel like in that moment – it must feel a lot, I'm just thinking about it myself, in that every time you would go there with someone that you almost have to cop it, like you have to feel like you have to feel pain
2: for their benefit. Well, it depends on the day. I think I should reiterate that. Like sometimes it's fine. It's the nervousness now that I don't know what day it's going to be and I don't know what's going to happen. And I don't want to drag some random person into that. Like you don't want to drag someone into that. But it is – sometimes it would be – it will absolutely be a sense of just copying it, like taking one for the team, which sounds weird. but it sounds super weird. It Doesn't it? <laughs> but I don't know. I think sometimes you're more than happy to do that for another person's happiness, and I never feel like I'm giving up any part of myself. Yeah. It's just like sometimes – very occasionally the price I have to pay. Do you think that conventional medicine could
0: do more to recognise women's sexual health problems like this?
2: I think it's horrific that nobody talks about it and I think that's not on the fault of conventional medicine. I think there's actually a lot out there to treat this. I think it's a communication breakdown between women I think it's a communication breakdown between the media forgetting that this is a story that they should be talking about and I think it comes back to the fact, and this is me guessing and projecting my own experience, but I think because there's so much shame, like you said at the very start, around the conversation of sex and women, that women probably aren't talking to their friends about this and if they're not talking to their friends about this, then no one's going to work that works in these kinds of industries where they tell stories and thinking that it is a story. And if that's not happening, then we're not talking about it on a public level. And if that's not happening, then nobody realizes that it's a thing. And everybody's not legitimized. Yeah, can, Everybody's just sitting in their rooms, like literally in darkness, going through it themselves. So I don't think it's a conventional medicine thing. There are so many avenues to fix this. And I wish someone had told me that really early on in that you will be fine. Like you will be completely fine. And generally I feel pretty fine. That sense of optimism wasn't there. It felt more like a freak show.
0: Yeah. How do you feel about dating in the future?
2: Um.
0: Are you hopeful? Are you optimistic about it still? I mean, I'm not a masochist. I'll end up with someone, I hope. (laughs) I hope. I think you'd need to have something a bit worse than this to keep someone away forever.
2: Well, yeah, it's true. Your personality is enough. (laughs) (laughs) To keep people away. (laughs) No doubt about it. I do feel hopeful. I think it's like one of those things where I'll get to where I need to be. There'll just be a few extra added hurdles. A lot of people have those extra added hurdles and that is completely fine. I think it's a classic case, though. If it's going to turn somebody off, then I was never meant to be with them anyway yeah so that's that's fine i think it's it's cautious hopefulness
0: and what would you say to a woman who's listening to this and maybe hasn't even taken the step to go to the doctor out of shame and feels like what you've explained and the symptoms that you had are exactly what she's experiencing what is your message to her
2: go to the gp and tell them that a female gp in particular or i went to a female gp but that's because i've always felt more comfortable with female doctors go to the gp and tell them that You're not just stressed and you're not just tight and that you don't just need a few drinks to relax and it will be fine, which I am sure so many women in this scenario are told, tell them that you think something is wrong, that it feels like knives are up you or that you've got some dull burning pain, whatever it might be. Tell them the explicit details and tell them that you want it fixed. Go to a pelvic floor physio. Go and find the avenues that exist to help you because there are so many of them Yeah, and I I want to them to know that I want you to know that that there is ways to fix this and you will fix it the other thing that I would say is please tell your girlfriends like please sit around at drinks and do what I never did which was talk to them about it and I think so many of them will be so angry with me right now (laughs) so angry um because I didn't let them in and I should have I really should have let them in so let people in talk about it because i remember saying to my girlfriend georgia as i was sitting at drinks with her and she was like you refused to talk about it with me so i never felt like i could ask and she was like i don't understand if you're dreading this conversation so much and if you're kind of nervous about it why you're doing it and i said to her georgia imagine the amount of messages from girls that we know that i'm going to get after this just statistically girls that we know that are in our orbit that are going to come out of the woodwork and be like fucking hells are me too and that she was around me the whole time and i never had a conversation with her about it because both of us didn't know what to say so i would just say talk to people about it and use the words about it and drop the shame about it too mm. Are you feeling okay now? I'm feeling okay. You've got
0: a very um, Zara-esque stress rash on your chest, (laughs) which (laughs) tends to come out
2: whenever you're a bit stressed and it's flaming red right now. I'm absolutely not surprised that I have a stress rash right now, but I don't think anybody else will after this conversation be surprised that I was stressed about talking about it. I think it's good practice for me to try to start talking about it more.
0: Yeah. Thank you.
2: Thank you. I love you. Oh, I love you too. (laughs) Thank you for being so kind. (laughs)
0: Love Etc. is a production from Shameless Media. Sign up to Bumble Australia, the social networking app where women make the first move towards friendship, professional and romantic relationships.